Hello, everybody. I am currently banned from TikTok Live once again. So, uh, unfortunately, this one is going to get recorded uh, not live. Uh, so, no genius level banter, no audience interaction. But we persevere, we overcome, and we innovate. I use this time, actually, this little hiatus to put together some topics some current event news stories that uh, interest me. And so this show is going to be a little more a little more researched, a little less extemporaneous and hopefully a bit more polished. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was the Biden administration announcing that they're going to be withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. Let me just say off the bat, it's very interesting to me how this is being portrayed by the media because Clearly, they want us to be glad about this. The headlines are reading, Biden announces U.S. troops to withdraw from Afghanistan. Obviously, something that most people want to see happen, right? This war has been going on pretty much my whole life. Afghanistan war started like a month after I was born, and it's been going strong ever since. So, probably time to put that one down. So, obviously, it's, it's good that we're getting out. But the thing is, Trump already was planning to do this. And Trump's plan had them out in May. But Biden is promising that the troops will be out till September. So the headlines should be saying Biden delays U.S. troop withdrawals until September. But instead, most of them are just saying Biden withdraws troops from Afghanistan. Another critical aspect of this, though, and another reason that this maybe shouldn't be celebrated, is that This withdrawal breaks an agreement the U.S. had with the Taliban to be gone by May. Like, the U.S. had a treaty with the Taliban, which said we were going to be gone by May. In reality, all Biden has done is pushed back the deadline for troops to be out of Afghanistan and broken an agreement with the Taliban, which could just lead to more violence. This is something that's amazing to me on the foreign policy front, is like, If you're any other country or like foreign entity, how can you ever make a treaty with America, right? We got to be like the least trustworthy nation ever. What happened to the Iran deal? Obama administration did this whole Iran deal. They had the policy wonks working hard in the politics factory to hammer it out. And what did Trump do when he got in there? First thing, he fucking smashed it right? He took a baseball bat to it immediately. I mean, I guess we left in 2018, but you know what I'm trying to say. And now we come to an agreement finally, and we're going to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, we'll have them gone by May. Next guy comes in, psych, we're staying in for another four months. (laughs) It's like, how can you negotiate with these people, you know? And then because we broke the agreement, the Taliban's going to go off again and then it's going to be, oh, there's a sur- been a surge of violence in Afghanistan. We got to stay for another uh, three decades. Then we'll leave. I promise. But other than the media angle, what does this say about American foreign policy? That Trump was going to withdraw troops and Biden, even though he pushed the deadline back, is still planning to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. Even, you know, five, six years ago, saying that we needed to be out of the Middle East was kind of a radical position. Oh, you don't care about national security? 
So I think this decision is sort of part of a bipartisan consensus that the U.S. doesn't need to be as involved in the Middle East. Obviously, we're still involved in Syria and other parts of the Middle East. We have tons of bases around Iran. Our presence there is for sure going to be felt. If not through us, then at least through like U.S. coalition forces, you know, through the Saudis or the Israelis or any of the number of paramilitary proxy groups that we've backed throughout the years. But this consensus really is forming that the U.S. does not need as many boots on the ground. I mean, and I think there's a number of factors that probably contributed to that. Number one is it's bad optics. U.S. soldiers being like physically present in a location comes with a number of like risks. First of all, if they mess up and kill a civilian or if they're responsible for something illegal happening, that reflects badly on the U.S. And second of all, if U.S. soldiers are killed in the line of duty, that makes the war more unpopular. And besides that, there's the fact that we just kind of are generally getting our asses kicked. And I think that the military establishment might sort of be waking up to the fact that the boots on the ground just storm into a location and uh, put up a flag are gone. So what I think we're going to see more of in the future, more indirect warfare. We're going to see more drone strikes. We're going to see more paramilitary group funding. And when we can't possibly avoid a boots-on-the-ground military operation, we'll do it through one of our allies in the Middle East, like the Saudis. But I don't necessarily think this is a good thing. Less U.S. troops will die, uh, but the underlying principles of war haven't really changed. The U.S. still wants control over strategic areas of the world. They still need to exert their influence in areas like the Middle East, Africa, the South China Sea, Eastern Europe against the Russians. We're still going to try and keep our vice grip on the world. Like, make no mistake, this doesn't mean that the U.S. is becoming less imperialist. All it means is that our strategy of warfare is changing. So, all of this is still going to happen. It's just going to be more indirect. It is going to continuously fade more and more into the background to the point where most people won't even really think about it at all. Most people think about having troops in the Middle East right now, probably very little. But once we've shifted away from actual boots on the ground operations and have officially exited the conflict in a lot of these places, the mental energy that the public devotes to this will drop to almost zero. We're already very easily distracted. I think the blueprint for this type of future warfare is Africa. Most people probably don't know that the U.S. has a somewhat fleshed out drone program in Africa. We've been conducting drone operations in Somalia for a number of years. I'm reading here from a Wired article that goes into detail on this. It says, in all, air raids by manned and unmanned U.S. aircraft have killed at least 112 Somali militants. 57 innocent civilians also died in the raids. And I would say probably most people don't even know that we're involved 
in Africa in this capacity. And that's probably how it's going to be going forward. People are going to people are going to be like, "Oh, you're telling me we conducted a drone strike in Afghanistan? I thought we got out of there." We're not really at war. It's not like we have people in there. We just sort of sit in the air conditioning and bomb people from 5000 feet. Yeah, less US troops will die, but I think in a way this sort of warfare might even be worse because it makes killing so easy. If we don't have to risk any of our people and we're just out here flying drones like it's a video game, it really just means nothing to us to be over there. My fear is that in the future it will be so easy for us to conduct these military operations with really relatively little manpower, relatively little risk, and relatively low profile that it'll be so easy for the average citizen to forget we're even at war. I just want to read one more section from the article here. It says, Some of the drones were destined for Somalia, where the CIA and Pentagon were advancing plans for a far-reaching but subtle campaign to defeat militias and prop up a fledgling UN-backed government. It was a campaign that, in stark contrast to the occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan, would not include any large permanent American ground forces. American CIA agents, mercenaries, commandos, and drones would provide intelligence, training, raiding prowess, and air cover, while Ethiopian, Ugandan, and Kenyan troops did most of the day-to-day fighting inside Somalia. It's sort of elegant in a morbid way. I mean, (laughs) welcome to 21st century warfare. So... Yeah, we're out of Afghanistan now. And that's probably a good thing. I don't want to be a downer. I'm just trying to be realistic here. It's good that we're exiting. But if you're holding out hope that this means that the Biden administration is trying to change U.S. foreign policy in any substantive way, I would say don't hold your breath on that one. Okay, next I want to talk about Biden's infrastructure plan. And then after that, I want to talk about Sebastian Gorka's TV show. So Biden just announced a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. And I got to say, when I looked at it, I was a bit impressed. You know, I thought maybe Biden's finally found his balls. But of course, then I open up the article and I read this quote. I'm prepared to negotiate as to the extent of my infrastructure project, as well as how we will pay for it. Biden said at the Oval Office meeting, striking a conciliatory tone. And here we have it. Mr. Bipartisan, Mr. Dealmaker, Mr. Unity is already looking to cut a deal before the bill is even in the House, even in the Senate. Before the rubber has even met the road, Biden is already letting Republicans know he will cave to their demands. And so how is this plan going to get paid for? Because that's the thing that most Republicans are opposing, right? The article says Biden is going to raise the tax to 28%, which is up from 21% where it's at now. But the thing is, the rate was as high as like 35% before Trump cut taxes in 2017. So Biden literally wants to raise taxes to a rate lower than they were like four years ago. And, of course, Republicans are going to paint this as radical. And Biden says he's willing to negotiate on that. 
a lower rate than four years ago, and he's willing to negotiate on it. Here we have it, man. This is just the classic Democrat negotiation strategy. Do Republicans do this? Of course not. Of course Republicans do not do this. Because this just is not how you negotiate. Everyone knows you go with the initial offer that's higher than you expect, and you negotiate down from there to get to the point that you actually want. It honestly seems like Democrats don't want to win. They just want to play fight and then let Republicans be the heel, like it's a WWE match, and then shoot them down, right? They want to let the Republicans shoot them down so they can say, oh, well, at least we tried, right? We tried to give you guys your infrastructure plan, but the big, bad, mean Republicans wouldn't let us have it. Oh, uh, can you reelect me, by the way? Thanks. So if Democrats wanted to win, here's what they do. Start off with a big ask, right? Robust public transportation, public housing, high-speed internet everywhere. And then you negotiate down from there. Like, Democrats are acting like they aren't negotiating from a strong position here. And listen, I understand that the Senate is split, but they do have the House, the presidency, and half the Senate. That's not nothing, right? They're the party in power. And here's, here's what they'd be saying if they actually were interested in getting this bill passed. Oh, you don't want to improve America's infrastructure? You don't want our country to be strong? What, do you hate America? Are you really so concerned with making sure that multinational corporations don't have to pay taxes that you're willing to sell out the American people? Do you really think China's just going to sit around and wait on us? They're upgrading their infrastructure. And you know who would really like it if our infrastructure was crumbling and vulnerable to attack? China. Because here's the thing, right? Biden wants to be Mr. Unity, but you don't get any points for acting conciliatory towards your enemy. That's what these people don't understand. All that that does is make you look weak. The Republicans aren't going to be like, oh, oh, gee, good point. I never thought of it that way. You know what? You're right. Yeah, let's pass this bill and be bipartisan. No, if you make concessions to you, they're going to take it and they're going to push you further. We've been told for months that Republicans are the enemy. Basically, that anybody who's a right wing is a white supremacist, is an insurrectionist. They stormed the Capitol and the media was all out here saying like, they are a threat to democracy. I cannot believe this is so shameful. And now they're in office and they're being like, okay, time to uh, be bipartisan and negotiate with these people that we just said were white supremacists who wanted to tear down our constitutional government a month ago. Why are you negotiating with these people? I thought they were the bad guys. And at least on a policy level, they're never going to give you anything. Everybody is too dug in at this point to just be like, oh, I think I'm just going to reevaluate and change my opinion. I wonder what the other side is saying. Time to engage with their arguments in good faith and try and find out what they're thinking and have a reasonable dialogue so we can come to a consensus. No, unfortunately, no. That sort of stuff is long gone. Now, all that really matters is winning. And Democrats don't seem to want to win that hard. I mean, Republicans certainly do. They're chomping at the bit. Who have they added to their roster recently? Marjorie Taylor Greene? 
Lauren Boebert, a bunch of insane gun-toting QAnon freaks. So yeah, that's the infrastructure plan. And and look, like I said about pulling out of Afghanistan, both of these things are, you know, legitimately okay, decent things. I do think we could probably use an infrastructure upgrade. And I would like to not be involved in the Middle East forever. It's just that I think you have to be realistic about how these things are going to play out, as well as the reasons that the people who are doing them are doing them for. So anyway, there's, there's the policy. There's the headlines. There's the hard-hitting news and truth. You uh, tune in to this esteem program for. But speaking of news, I recently checked out Sebastian Gorka's new hit show on Newsmax called Sebastian Gorka Reality Check. Or it's actually called Reality Check with Sebastian Gorka. Before I get into the show itself, let me just set the stage here. Because I think it's important to consider the context that this show exists in to fully understand the beautiful mind of Sebastian Gorka and the not-so-beautiful programming that he has created for us. So it seems to me like the Republican Party is kind of in a fragile situation. Trump lost. The sort of, like, Q prophecy failed. The baby-eating evil Dems are now in power. And (laughs) probably a significant chunk of the Republican base thinks that, uh, Joe Biden is actively trying to bring socialism to America, which, God, I wish. (laughs) It's like, okay, just a little tangent here, but I really wish that Democrats were as cool as Republicans make them out to be. They're like, oh, they want, they're radical. They're pushing real hard for this Green New Deal, for Medicare for all. It's like, yeah, I wish. I really wish they were, but, uh, You guys don't have anything to worry about. Trust me. You'll be fine. But anyway, Trump is gone. That's the important part. I mean, and he's really is gone. Like he's banned from Twitter, um, out of the presidency. He is, I assume, golfing right now. At any hour of the day, if you were betting that Trump was golfing or just like stuffing his face with a Big Mac while watching Hannity on full blast, you would probably have decent odds. But he was like the glue holding the party together. He was able to channel something, consciously or unconsciously, that got him that presidency. I don't know how he did it, like whether he had some special sauce that got him in there, or he was just in the right place at the right time, or whoever was running the simulation thought it would be funny to, to play a prank on anybody. He got in. He actually managed to do it. And in doing so, he sort of built like this almost cult-like following. He became the guy around which everything revolved in the Republican Party, in like conservative media spaces. Everyone who denounced him in the primaries after he won either bent the knee or they got destroyed. Are there really any prominent conservatives who are openly anti-Trump? Not really. Never Trump Republicans are scorned and hated within their own party. 
And so somehow Trump became the center of this vortex of energy. Everyone could feel, for better or for worse, in the 2016 election, I think, that he disrupted the simulation. His arrival was not meant to happen. There was a crack in the matrix there. And it's sad because he was just one of the stupidest people ever. Pretty much no redeeming qualities. Even evil qualities. He's not particularly cunning. He's not brave in any way. He's not really charismatic. He's just sort of funny. And really his only possible virtue is just his stupidity and his brashness. And when he won, for most people, this crack in the fabric was too much. And they just sort of shrank away. Like it's a very polarizing process. Everybody either loves him or hates him. The majority, I think, hate him. But some of them just embraced him fully. Like something in their psychology of these people bound them to him. It's insane. I'm sure you all know one or two people like this who, and not to point fingers, but they're probably of the boomer generation whose mind has just been flayed by this man. And so this cult built until it was finally codified in QAnon. QAnon is like a pretty complex phenomenon and there's a lot of different like sects but where most of them intersect is their love for Trump and the belief that he is some sort of like messianic figure that's gonna right all the wrongs in the world like they really believe he was the prophet and so that brings us to today Um, the prophecy has failed it's pretty hard to ignore that I think for even the average QAnon follower For like the true Trump believers, this is limbo. And they'll be in limbo for the next four years. (laughs) They're like the disciples during the three days that Jesus was in the tomb. And so now there's this power vacuum. Republicans are tentatively sort of starting to look around, gauge the situation, read the room, sort of feel the air and see where the currents are going. And I think what they've found is that so far, nobody's been able to harness the energy Trump has. Even if they say all the things he said, like even if they adopt his attitudes and his affect, they're never going to cut it because they're not him. It was never about what he was saying. It was always about him somehow. And so the only way for these people to get ahead, to tap into this like bizarre psychic cloud that formed around Trump is to align themselves with him specifically as a dude, not like his platform necessarily although that is like a requirement. But the first and foremost thing that you have to do is bend the knee to Trump and pay lip service to him. Like watch any Republican campaign ad. Whenever they're like sniping at each other, more often than not, they're going to accuse each other of not standing with Trump. And when they try and make themselves look good, they're going to talk up how they're connected to Trump and how they want to advance the America first agenda and how them and Trump are basically best buddies. So the never Trump Republicans have been cast out. Those who tried to oppose him or hold out have all bent the knee or been destroyed. But some have devoted themselves to him fully and therefore they will receive his inheritance. Priests, evangelists for the strange new religion enter Sebastian Gorka. But who is Gorka? 
Sebastian Gorko is one of Trump's top counterterrorism advisors. Besides having the affect of a supervillain, Geraldo, you've met the president. How can you even posit for a millisecond that he thinks all immigrants are animals? He's Gorka is known for his familial ties to the Hungarian neo-Nazi adjacent group Vitezi Rend, whose medal he proudly wore to the President Trump's inaugural ball. In April of 2021, Gorka was permanently banned from YouTube for repeatedly violating the company's policy on spreading misinformation related to the 2020 presidential election. Gorka's America First radio show had previously been banned from the site in 2019 for copyright violations specifically due to Gorka's refusal to stop playing the Imagine Dragons song Radioactive in his intro segment. So what is Gorka up to now? Banned from YouTube, cut off from the heavenly light of Donald J. Trump, out of the White House, in exile. Gorka has, like many other smart Republicans, recognized that Trump is the only way up right now in conservative politics. He is the singular pole around which all Republican energy is organized. And since Gorka recognizes this, he has gone to pro-Trump media mecca, Newsmax. That's right. After suggesting that maybe the 2020 election possibly was not rigged and maybe Trump just lost fair and square, Fox News fell out of favor with the uber-conservative America First Trump core. And while Fox News was amazingly somehow not right-wing enough for them, a lot of them went to Newsmax, a place that is more than happy to pander to Trump voters to the fullest extent possible. So Gorka is now on Newsmax. He has a new show called The Gorka Reality Check. And... It is just as bland as the name suggests. For a party that claims to love free speech and lively debate, Newsmax as like a platform seems remarkably, I don't know, I guess I would say padded is the right word for it. Just very safe. One might even call it a safe space, perhaps. Um, (laughs) Newsmax is like where conservatives go to like just turn their brains off and just be spoon-fed pro-Trump paste. And Gorka's show is the epitome of that. Gorka is the king of just feeding them baby food. This show reads like if somebody fed an AI hours of North Korean state media and then just find and replace Kim's name with Trump. If or when, I guess, Trump were to move his followers to say a remote jungle compound in Guyana, Gorka's show would be what played over the loudspeakers all day, while Trump's loyal followers toiled away making Facebook posts about how great the president was. Now, what about the show itself? Like, what is this show about? What do I think of it? Let me spill the tea for you guys. I gotta be honest, it sucks ass. It's not even like a so bad it's good type situation. It's just bad. It sucks. It's bland. There's no like over the top statements. None of even like the fiery sort of outbursts that typically characterize, you know, Gorka mindset. There's just nothing to give this show texture. It's bland. I'm sorry. He seems bored. 
almost like hypnotized and I don't know maybe he is and he's sort of trying to hypnotize you too because that's the bottom line this isn't entertainment and it's certainly not news it is hypnosis that conservatives willingly subject themselves to to be placated during the Trump years they could sort of ride the high of winning of being in power of finally being able to exercise violence and hatred on others. But now that they're out, I just sort of burnt out. And I think a lot of them just want to turn their brains off, drift away, and go to sleep to the sound of Gorka assuring them that everything is going to be all right. Donald Trump personally loves you. And as long as you accept him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. You may even make it to the afterlife of a second Trump term, if you're faithful enough. I'll try and like splice in some clips of the show, uh, just to give you guys a taste of what it is. Welcome to the Gorka Reality Check. I'm your host, Dr. Sebastian Gorka. For those who haven't heard me or seen me before, I'm a legal immigrant to the United States whose life changed inexorably when a very, very successful businessman who wasn't a politician decided to run for the highest office in the land. It is now history when Donald John Trump and his beautiful wife Melania Trump came down a certain escalator in Manhattan. That man was laughed at. He was ridiculed by the establishment on both sides of the political aisle. He faced down his own Republican challenges and defeated them. And then he defeated a woman who th thought her... You really only need to hear about 10 seconds and then you've sort of gotten the gist of what this show is about. It's not even like a news show. Gorka doesn't like give his take on current event topics, at least as far as I can tell. And the only thing to really break up his monologue is having on guests, uh, which basically just consists of him feeding them softballs. He had on Nigel Farage. It's nobody who would maybe disagree with him or, you know, have like any sort of counterpoint to what he's saying. It's just the pro-Trump gang out here in full force. It's a sermon, basically. Gorka is just delivering one of the most boring sermons you could possibly listen to. Anyway, good thing my show is cool and good and people like it. So ladies and gents, smash that like button. Beat the fuck out of that like button. Subscribe, hit that bell or whatever uh, so that I can beat Sebastian Gorka in ratings. I need to surpass this man because he's drier than Afghanistan. Oh, full circle, baby. You like that one? It's like one of those loop videos on TikTok. It just replays and then you don't even